Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Today, uh, we'll have an opportunity to discuss key priorities, uh, both domestic uh, and global, so that China can better understand our administration's intentions. With the wisdom of the Chinese people, there is no way to strangle China. Are the concerns with actions by China, including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on well, the United I States? Well, I think we thought too well of the United States. We thought that the U.S. side will follow the necessary diplomatic protocols. But we welcome stiff competition. And we will always stand up for our principles. Had the Chinese people not suffered enough in the past from the foreign countries? No, no, no. The United States' relationship with China will be competitive where it should be, collaborative where it can be, adversarial where it must be. That is the sound of two superpowers colliding in sub-zero temperatures with the gloves off. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham, the SEMP's Europe correspondent. But it's all about Alaska this week. We saw China's top diplomat Yang Jichu and the Foreign Minister Wang Yi join US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan for what was the first engagement at this level of the Biden administration. For fans of fireworks, this was up there with the Lunar New Year display over Hong Kong's Victoria Harbour. For fans of courteous diplomacy, you may want to tune out now. Our man in Anchorage, Mark Mangier, has spent the past week stomping about in his snow boots and getting the vibe on the ground from Alaska's biggest city. We will have him on the line from his cabin as he winds down from the event with a hot cocoa to get the scoop from the inside. First, as ever, I'm joined by our political economy editors, John Carter and Joe Shin, to talk about the fallout from this meeting. Was anything achieved? Why did both sides feel the need to come out swinging? And what does China think about the first European sanctions since Tiananmen Square due to be slapped in place on Monday? Stay tuned to find out. It is Saturday afternoon. I'm joined by John Carter and Joe Xin, our political economy editors, to analyse what was a pretty surprising event yesterday in Alaska, the first high-level summit of top diplomats of the Biden era from China and the United States. And there were plenty of fireworks. You're going to hear more about the juicy details of what actually went down from Mark Magnier in the second part of the show. But first, let's get a bit of analysis and reaction from our editors. John, how taken aback were you by this uh, sort of uh, by this summit and how the gloves really came off very early on? Well, on the one hand, it wasn't too surprising, uh, although the tone might have been. But the, the the substance of what was said had all been said before. The U.S. doesn't like certain Chinese policies, uh, be it Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, and uh, China basically. Uh, doesn't want the U.S. dictating to it about its domestic policies. Uh, on, on the other hand, the tone was important, and it raises questions about the ability of China and the United States to work together, or 
the worst case scenario is to work against each other even more in the future. For instance, the prospect of uh, the trade sanctions coming off is likely uh, not likely in the near future. I would note that global financial markets uh, were hit by uh, the tone of the talks, particularly Asian markets. All Asian markets fell on Friday, uh, led by the Chinese domestic market in Hong Kong, uh, because they're worried about the outlook for uh, U.S.-China relations and what it will do for the economic relationship. So uh, I gather from what Mark, our correspondent in Alaska, was reporting, that the second day was more constructive uh, the disagreements remain, but there were some uh, initial uh, forays into areas where there could be cooperation, which is good news. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, uh, again, the Chinese uh, previously were talking about this as the first of a series of summit meetings. Hopefully, Xi and Biden to meet in April or May. We'll see about that. The United States was saying, uh, no, this is a one-off, and then we'll take it from there. So. It's wide open going forward, um, not hugely surprising, but not certainly not encouraging by any means. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. Joshin, what has been the reaction to this uh, in China? Like, how has it been portrayed in the media and just from people that you're speaking to generally? Um, is this something that's sort of shocked people or, again, as John said, are they not that surprised? Uh, well, first of all, I think the appearance is, uh, is more important for the Chinese audience, especially, you know, uh, Yang Jiechi used uh, over 15 minutes to lecturing uh, the U.S. side. You know, your uh, you have no 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 rights to criticize China. You know, your view doesn't uh, represent the world view. These kind of comments have uh, uh, you know widely applauded uh, on Chinese social media and the, by Chinese state media. The People's Daily, the social media, even produced a, a, a photo or a kind of um, you know artistic work compared the picture in uh, Alaska compared to 120 years ago when the Qing dynasty was negotiating with the uh, uh, allies of uh, eight armies. You know, so it's, it's, it's certainly given the feeling that uh, this is another uh, historical moment that shows, you know, China is no longer uh, being, uh, you know, inferior to the U.S. China is absolutely on the equal footing with the United States and China can shout it back every time the United States is trying to criticize China over whether it's about Xinjiang, about Hong Kong, or about cybersecurity, you know, China has has the full uh, capabilities or have the full rights uh, to yield back, saying, you know, your democracy is the problem. You know, people are doubting your democracy systems. So stop questioning the Communist Party rule of China. You know, you mm -hmm. have to look at look at yourself. But but I mean, these are for the for the, of course uh, for many analysts, it's uh, it's clear that this is more for domestic audience. But for the actual results, that uh, although uh, uh, from the from the final statements on both sides, we can see that there are still, of course, huge differences uh, over over important issues. But there are some uh, positive sides. For instance, China and United States has agreed that they will set up a joint working group on climate change, and that's a very positive uh, positive sign because this, uh, you know, ha has provided kind of mechanism. For the for Beijing and Washington to talk to each other, or specifically for for uh, uh, Joe Biden's uh, man to talk to Xi Jinping's man in the in the in the future, you know, even for their meetings or you know for their video conference calls, this has uh, has at least has you know made it possible. So so there are still, despite all these uh, 
fiery exchanges, you know, these kind of dramatic scenes uh, in front of the cameras. There are still some positive progress from uh, from the Alaska meeting. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, anyway, I think by if if you know Washington and Beijing really have no intention to talk each other, to talk to each other, they they won't. Uh, be be this meeting. So the meetings uh, happening itself proved that both Beijing and Washington had something to you know in their mind that they can get from the other side, so that they can maintain at least some contacts and communication. And uh, in terms of that, I think the climate change working group actually delivered this kind of expected result. Yeah, and Joshin, there's been so many memes and videos uh, floating around on WeChat this uh, last few couple of days. Some really funny ones, um, and, and I wondered: is this a uh, an event that has sort of seeped into the uh, consciousness of the general public, or uh, you know, does everybody know about this? Is everybody talking about this, or is it like in the US, probably mainly people who are watching China and watching politics closely? No, I think in China it's uh, it's more of a universal because this is apparently designed. You see, it's pushed by Xinhua, it's pushed by CCTV, it's pushed by the People's Daily. So the Beijing uh, the propaganda machine apparently wants people to get this message that you know uh, our diplomats are you know standing firm in front of the uh, in front of the Americans. Our diplomats are you know earning uh, points for the for the nation, and 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 you know the reason. Behind this is because our country is now so powerful and so strong, and the leadership of the Communist Party. This is a message that the uh, Beijing is trying very hard to, you know, get us through. And I think, without you know, due to you know uh, um, the censorship of different views, I think it's quite effective. So if you ask any people uh, randomly on the streets of Beijing or Shanghai, I think most of people will say, "Well, you, you know, this clearly seeing is that China has become a superpower, you know, on par with the United States." Yeah, interest, interestingly, we, we'll hear from Mark shortly, but his colour piece asking people in Alaska what they thought about this was brilliant because nobody knew it was even going on. <laughs> I thought that was an absolutely brilliant article. Um, John, how, what do you think about this in terms of the, the grander scheme of things? Um, nothing too uh, substantial achieved, but do you think it's just a, a net positive to have these guys in the same room? Uh, it's better to have a meeting than no meeting at all, even if it's being portrayed in the Western media as a disaster. Well, again, we need to remember that Biden has been in office just over two months. Um, and and he, one of the first things he said, in fact, uh, early in January, even before his inauguration, he said, we're going to look at everything. We're going to uh, review our China strategy. And, and then we're going to create a China strategy. One of the big criticisms of Trump is that there was no strategy behind his moves. Um, and we'll see that's still being discussed um, and they haven't decided on what that strategy is. And one of the things that they wanted to get from this meeting was information. You know, how would the Chinese react to certain questions and how both in public and in private? And there's a question and there's some indication that the uh, very public uh, disagreements, the sharp words were not carried through into the private meetings, that the, there was much more of a, uh, shall we call it a professional tone to the behind the closed doors meetings. And so in the bigger scheme of things, it's too soon to tell. Uh, the U.S. is going through this strategy review. The Chinese are trying to figure out, and I assume from the Chinese side, it's the same thing. They're trying to figure out how to deal with the Biden administration. It's very different than Trump. Um, so uh, opening round. I mean, we'll see. It may take 
months and perhaps even years for us to answer that question. Yeah, very different from Trump, John, but a lot of the policies are the same. They haven't lifted any of the tariffs. They haven't lifted any of the export controls. They're still going pretty hard. So where do you see the differences between the two administrations? Well, the, the key difference, of course, is working with allies. And you'll note that um, that Blanken is headed off to the uh, Europe next week uh, for a meeting of NATO uh, officials. And I assume that he will give them a big debrief on, uh, on what was said at the, the Alaska meeting. Um, and we had the Quad meeting uh, last week uh, with Biden and the heads of Australia, India, and Japan. And so that's the big difference is that, and we knew this going into the Biden administration because they set it up front that they're going to work with the allies. What results that creates um, remains to be seen again. It's too early days, too soon to say. Um, uh, and I would note from the Chinese side that the Russian foreign minister is coming to town uh, either this weekend or early next week. So the Russians, uh, the Chinese are also reaching out to uh, their friends and we'll see what it all means in the longer run. As you say, the sanctions are still in place and it remains unclear what the Biden administration will do with those. I mean, there's a, a an international angle to it is it does it really do you any good economically, but there's also a domestic political angle for Biden. Um, can he be, appear to be soft on China? He's already being criticized domestically for his China stance. And so yeah. he, he doesn't have a lot of domestic political leeway uh, to uh, ease um, sanctions against China. Yeah, it's going to be a busy week for me on the EU-China beat with the NATO meeting and also the EU Foreign Affairs Council meeting on Monday night. Um, they will adopt sanctions uh, on Chinese officials and one entity we're expecting to be an organization. Um, and this is related to alleged human rights abuses in Xinjiang. The interesting thing here is that this is the first time the European Union has issued sanctions of these form uh, on China since 1989, since the Tiananmen Square crackdown. Um, and Joe Shane, I want to ask you whether you, you know this is seen as a, a like a really bad point in the relationship between Europe and China. Is this something that perhaps the Europe, the, the 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 China side are are thinking? Okay, it's a few sanctions we can deal with this. But I mean, it's it is quite insignificant that this these are the first for you know thirty years. Oh, it is it is quite insignificant. I mean, if the European is going to sanction China, I mean, this is a really uh, big deal for for Beijing. You know, this is a, this. Uh, could lead to very, you know, we don't know know yet what kind of uh, specific retaliation Beijing will take against uh, uh, European businesses or European politicians. But apparently, this is not going to be, you know, end up very well because uh, at this moment, uh, at today, China, what China's perce perception is like, China is now uh, 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 the worst number two. Uh, economy, its market is creating lots of business opportunities for European businesses. So it has, it deserves to be, uh, you know, to be recognized and to be appreciated. And, you know, whatever it has done in Xinjiang is its eternal affairs. And even you look at some online commentators, you know, something, some, somebody even argued that how can Germany, you know, sanction China for genocide? You know, Germany, you have the, <laughs> you have the history of the Holocaust and not China. And, and you know, these, these kind of, of course, I'm not saying I'm agree with, I agree with these kind of arguments, but these are other, other, you know, natural defensive response from the Chinese to 
Chinese uh, public, and also this is a this is a general sentiment among people. You know, how can you know there's a Europe uh, sanctioning uh, China at, at at it's just unbelievable for for many of the uh, policymakers and 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 the public. Yeah, so, yeah. It's interesting to read even Jolly Jan, the wolf warrior of wolf warriors, um, at the Thursday press conference of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I mean, he was. He wasn't even, he was lashing out a little bit, but he was mainly saying, look, we see uh, Europe as a strategic partner. W- you know, we, we don't want to get to this stage with Europe. It's very markedly different language to which he was using in terms of his references to the United States. And, you know, China continually refers to Europe as a partner, even though Europe has now, uh, you know, drawn up this uh, new definition of China, which it con- considers it a systemic rival. Um, so you get a sense there that maybe China's is worried about the whole whole of the West slipping away. They, they do have a generally healthy re- relationship. With, exactly. If you, yeah. if you remember, you know, during the uh, Trump days, during Trump years, China trying very hard to say, you know, American is America, Europe is Europe, and China has been trying so hard to telling the Europeans that you, can, you know, you can still be my partner, even you know, Washington should have seen, seen me as rival. But it seems all the developments are, you know, against Beijing's wishes. So there must be some uh, frustration and disappointments within Beijing, and this will, this uh, kind of sanction could be the, you know. The last straw breaks the camel's pack. You know, Beijing will say, "Okay, f- it. You know, enough is enough. Maybe we should go ahead with, uh, you know, go ahead with whatever like we, <laughs> we have to do with the Europeans. You know, just yeah. no way to persuade Europe to be part of uh, a Beijing for a, a trusted friend of Beijing." The interesting thing that I can I maybe share on background here was um, I've been meeting with many of the European officials in Hong Kong over the past month or two, diplomats and. EU officials themselves. Uh, one nation, um, I won't name the names, but you know, very uh, industrial uh, European nation said that over the past four years of Trump, they had constant advances from uh, the commissioner here in Hong Kong, you know, the Chinese commissioner for Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, and they were always trying to ask them, you know, why are you in bed with the United States? You know, when the United States is such an unreliable partner, you know, China is, China is the reliable partner for you. You know, we're not going to uh, put tariffs on your goods. We're going to keep the commercial relationship going along as normal. Um, those calls have stopped coming now that Biden's been elected. Um, I thought that was a little interesting tidbit into how the sort of uh, Chinese diplomatic corps have been trying to win over their European counterparts over the past four years because they saw that there was no trust of Trump. But of course, these uh, Europeans were not really likely to, you know, say, okay, we're all in with China now. But this work was certainly going on in Hong Kong and uh, I guess in other parts of the the world. But interesting dynamic. John, what's your take on on the whole Europe-China thing? Is this um, something you're you're, you're putting down to yet another piece of sanctioning or is it something more significant? Well, I mean, as Joe Shin has said, and you have said, uh, these first sanctions since 1989 are, are highly symbolic. And in, in express the opinion of uh, European officials, and they were, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were adapted unanimously by all the EU countries. Well, they have to be, if they will be adopted on Monday, presumably they're going to be unanimous because they've been thrashed out by Sherpas in, you know, closed door meetings for the past week. But the point is, you've got 27 nations, and it's hard to, and you know, it's like herding cats. Getting 27 nations to agree on anything is difficult. And for them to agree on this as a 
precedent-setting move is highly symbolic. And the question is, where does it go from here? Uh, if, uh, as you've mentioned previously, these uh, investment treaty, the highly controversial investment treaty between the EU and China comes up for uh, EU parliamentary consideration uh, next year. And um, is this the start of a process where uh, that treaty is in trouble and it, and, and that treaty uh, is voted down, not ratified by the EU mm. parliament? And what impact would that have on EU-China relations? Yeah, my take on that is that this is the start of, of the process for actually getting the treaty ratified because the European Parliament is not happy with the Labour chapter in the agreement. They don't think it's sufficient, but the European Commission thinks that if it can, if it can um, do enough other legislation on Xinjiang, on Hong Kong, if it can sanction officials, if it can bring in this uh, due diligence legislation, which would essentially ban forced labour-made goods from the European supply chain, then th they, this may be enough to convince the sceptics, the many sceptics in the European Parliament, to vote for the CAI. So I think this is what we're seeing is the first step in a way of actually trying to get the CAI done. Weirdly, you know, it's a <laughs> bit of 4D chess required there, but the, I, I, that's what I see in this. Well, and I, but I wonder about the um, ability of the commission to get this done, particularly given how they've really botched the vaccination rollout. Their competence is in question, in my view. I mean, the vaccine has rollout has been a disaster. Um, you know, the European institutions aren't looking very good at the moment. Um, you know, and if China's one thing that where, where they can sort of work together, even if they can get Hungary to sign on these sanctions, you know, that is significant. Um, but I'd be I'd be curious to know whether the Commission has said to China, "Look, we're going to have to do these things in order to get the treaty passed. So you have to hold your nose and let it happen." Could well be because this is the sense that this is what's going to happen, yeah. And um, you know, Wang Yiwei, who is um, an expert on European-China relations at Renmin University up in Beijing, he told me this week that's essentially what he thinks. You know, China has to sort of not get involved in these sort of blow-by-blow. Um, things that the European Commission is is doing. Of course, they have to issue a strongly worded statement, and they're going to criticise it. Of course, and you wouldn't expect any any less from Beijing. But um, but they do. I think there is a sense that okay, this is a sort of necessary evil if we're to get out the other side and get this ratified. Yeah. Now we'll have to wait and see. When does the um, ratification process start? So, in a very uh, European twist, what they did was they signed the deal on the last day of the German presidency of the EU Council. Um, and they will ratify the deal under Macron, under the French uh, six-month tenure of the European Council. So this was a bit of a carve-up by the French and the Germans, um, where the Germans wanted it agreed on their beat, and uh, the French wanted ratified on their watch. Although I wonder whether the French will come to regret that, because you know, as we've discussed, it's pretty toxic in Europe at the moment. So it's it's maybe not necessarily going to be uh, something that's going to sail through the Parliament. We're going to hear all about these China-Russia meetings, Blinken in Brussels. Uh, so tune in next week and find out a wee bit more about that. Thanks to John. Thanks to Joe Shin. Enjoy your Saturdays. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters.
arrive 1.30 or 2 in their morning, which is about 5 in my morning. I get the rental car and I and I, I get the keys and the lady says, okay, uh, no pets, no smoking, and no fish products. I say, what's that? She said, no fish products. Welcome to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joined by Mark Magnier, who is our US correspondent and who this week finds himself in the icy climes of Alaska. Mark, thanks for joining from Anchorage. How are you getting on there? Oh, uh, quite well. Uh, uh, There was a bit of news today where I think uh, Anchorage has not had a a day over zero in something like almost 60 days. It's uh, it's, it's, uh, global warming is, is hitting in strange ways even up here. Wow. Okay. Um, So you've been following the biggest diplomatic event of the year so far. Um, You were in Alaska for a few days before the start of the event. Tell us about the sort of the run up. Was there a lot of press around? Were people excited that Anchorage had been chosen as the venue for this uh, high profile summit or what was the vibe? Well, it's actually I, I spent a bunch of time going to supermarkets and restaurants and talking to uh, Anchorage uh, natives and uh, residents. And a lot of the reaction I got was, uh, say what? What meeting? Uh, uh, I had one guy who said, oh, yeah, I think I heard something about it, but maybe I mixed that up with a news piece on the Vatican. I'm not sure. Um, so, <laughs> so there, there, the, the awareness was quite low. And then they once they realized it was Alaska, I had some, of, I had some, and these are Alaskans say, why would they do it here? <laughs> Which in some way is a very good question because uh, I think in, in many ways it was uh, designated here by the Biden administration uh, as a way to not give it the sort of prestige that you would have in Washington, in the capital, but they still wanted to have it on U.S. territory uh, to make the point that the Chinese had to come here. And the fact that uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Seoul, which is 45 minutes from Beijing <laughs> and came all the way here so that the Chinese had to come all the way across the Pacific <laughs> to meet with them. It kind of says a lot about how the, view, the U.S. viewed uh, the diplomatic theatrics of this thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And w- w- so, so what about the, the um, I mean, did the press corps follow? Uh, how many journalists would you say were uh, walking the snowy streets of Anchorage in your, in your footsteps? So, that was sort of interesting because, uh, you know, it was kind of an amazing uh, event that erupted here to see uh, the two biggest economic powers of, uh, of in the world uh, get into this tit-for-tat spat. Uh, but the expectations on this thing were very low. So uh, uh, part of that was at play. And then the Biden administration uh, worked very hard to downplay this. And there were only uh, five reporters uh, that were allowed on the official press pool on both sides. Um, Then there were some that showed up just by their own accord, but it was a very small press corps really. Um, I would say probably two thirds uh, Chinese uh, from the Chinese media and uh, maybe a third 
from the uh, Western side. Mm, great. Tell us about the actual meeting itself, uh, the, well, the, the opening skirmishes of the meeting, um, probably more interesting than anything that was said in the meeting. Um, the headlines were great. Um, some of the lines used by the, the diplomats were also infinitely quotable. What was your sort of take on how things developed? So uh, in many ways, this was well foreshadowed because I think the two sides had been uh, sparring in the press for uh, many days, if not weeks, uh, sort of posturing and throwing uh, accusations back and forth. Um, but uh, it's very rare that you see diplomats uh, just break out of the cordon of the decades of training uh, that they have that frustrate most journalists on how they can say absolutely nothing most of the time uh, in very elegant fashion. And yet it all just exploded at this meeting. And so I think probably the Biden administration was trying to uh, score some points before the meeting. They had uh, set some sort of rough guidelines that each participant would spend about two minutes with a little presentation of their main points, which they uh, wanted to, you know, probably, as I said, score some points. And then, you know, it didn't go to script. <laughs> and it just turned into wonderful drama <laughs> with the two biggest superpowers, you know, in some ways acting like uh, children in the schoolyard. Yeah, which is great. Great for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and was there sort of, um, I mean, as, as this was unfolding, were you sort of thinking, well, I can't believe I'm, <laughs> I can't believe what I'm seeing, because certainly when I was reading it, I was like, wow, that is an event to, to, for the ages. Yeah, not only that, but I think many, um, many, you know, news organizations were kind of reluctant to send anybody, this is going to be a a nothing burger and, um, you know, sort of uh, 101 journalism, go, just go and see what happens. And, and uh, it turned into, uh, you know, uh, an amazing story, something I think that will be historic. I don't think we're probably going to see uh, this sort of interaction between the diplomats of these two countries, even during the height of the, uh, uh, the name calling during the Trump administration, you never saw this sort of direct contact between uh, representatives of the two powers. Hmm. Do you think there's any positives to take away from this, Mark? I know that things sort of did uh, have a bit more decorum in the second day and the talks themselves perhaps were a bit more productive than the press, um, the, the exchanges that the press saw. Um, what, what do you think each side can take away from this? Um, so I do. I do think there is a positive. I think they've both laid down their markers. Uh, they have, um, I think they had to kind of get it out. <laughs> they had to let the pressure out. Uh, they have both been uh, getting amped up by their own uh, conservatives in, in each country. And so I think this first meeting was just uh, a lot of the pressure, uh, a lot of the accusations, a lot of the pride coming out on both sides. Mm. Um, and, and I think in some way, both of them were kind of shocked in some way what happened because it was very, very fast that you started to see uh, them recast things. Uh, a senior U.S. official probably an hour after that preliminary press uh, scrum 
uh, sent the message, oh, uh, actually in the talks behind closed doors, we had quite a productive meeting and it lasted longer than we expected and we had a frank exchange of views. And then you saw the, if you looked at the, the, the state, uh, state media uh, on Friday, mm -hmm. uh, even the Global Times, which is usually out there um, uh, banging the drum on uh, uh, certain arguments, was, was talking about how this is a good first attempt and we do have, uh, we did find uh, issues that we can speak to in common and what have you. So my sense is that they've laid down a marker. Mm -hmm. uh, they have identified probably a few areas where they uh, can work together. And uh, they outlined uh, uh, Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken uh, outlined some of those at the conclusion, Afghanistan, North Korea, Iran, uh, other areas that are going to be uh, quite competitive and uh, even antagonistic including technology and trade. Um, and then they will probably both go back to their capitals and try to recalibrate. It's clear we're not going back to where we were. Uh, the rules have changed, the game has changed, and I think it will take some time for uh, recalibrate. So Mark, I just want to ask you before we, we wrap up uh, briefly, um, you said that about two thirds of the press corps there were Chinese. Has there been any fraternizing between the two groups of journalists at the event? No, very little. I, I've spoken to a few of the, uh, of the Chinese journalists and they were quite quick to say that they, uh, it was against policy uh, to really talk very much. Most of them also mentioned that they were not uh, flying in from China uh, because the visa uh, situation uh, has become so difficult, the legacy of the Trump administration. And some of them also complained to me that they were uh, very overworked now because they had had colleagues get tossed out um, uh, under the visa restrictions and were doing twice as much work uh, themselves. Um, but uh, no beers and uh, shooting the breeze on U.S.-China relations uh, that I was aware of. Fair enough. Well, we'll let you go back to your beers because you've earned one. But <laughs> thanks, Mark, for taking the time out of your Friday night or Saturday afternoon to join us on the podcast. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. I use the term loosely. Thanks for listening to the China Geopolitics Podcast with myself, Finbar Birmingham. We will be back this time next week. In the meantime, stay safe, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask, and if you can, get the jab. See you then. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.